Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 54 for the first half of November 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, Part 5. Now, before I specify what exactly we'll be discussing in this episode, I want to quickly list some of the other fake stories of Planet X's that I've addressed in this podcast before. The first was the idea of the 3,600-year orbiting or year-long orbit Planet X containing the alien Anunnaki by Zachariah Sitchin. Second is Gilbert Erickson's Wormwood that should be swinging by any day now. Third was the conspiracy idea that Planet X is approaching from the South Pole. Fourth was Nancy Leader's no-show Planet X from 2003, but her insistence today that it's still out there and nearby, and causing earthquakes. This episode's fake story of Planet X has to do with another conspiracy theory idea that NASA really and truly did discover Planet X in the 1980s, and even news stories at the time reported on it, but that NASA covered it up and they're secretly monitoring it now, but they're just keeping it a secret from we the people. Now let's start out, as I normally try to do, with the science. Earth's atmosphere blocks a lot of infrared light. Infrared light is the light that has a longer wavelength than visible light. Water is a very good absorber of infrared light, and with the terrestrial atmosphere at anywhere from about 1-4% to water vapor at any given time, it's responsible for absorbing around 70% of the incoming and outgoing infrared light. And, being a molecule, water vapor has a gazillion little bands of absorption that make astronomers' lives very annoying. Another molecule that's not too common, but that we've heard a lot about in the last decade or two, is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is an even more efficient absorber of infrared light, and it generally absorbs infrared light in different parts of the spectrum than water vapor. Now the point here is to say, what I did about a minute ago, that our atmosphere is fairly efficient at blocking infrared light from getting in or out. What this means for astronomy is that anyone who wants to do infrared observations needs to get above the atmosphere or work in very, very narrow ranges of light that the atmosphere doesn't block, and preferably work in dry locations. Infrared astronomy is very useful in performing observations like peering into dust clouds and the center of the galaxy, because dust is more transparent to infrared light than visible. We can also see warm objects because they glow in infrared light, just like people do, and planets, and scientific instruments, which means that besides the atmosphere itself absorbing infrared light, Astronomers have to contend with their own instruments and the planet itself literally glowing in the infrared. What this all is leading up to is that the dawn of the space age meant that astronomers now had a better way of making observations in the infrared. Send an infrared observatory into space. It can be kept cold, at least for a while, and it can be kept above the infrared light emitting planet and infrared light absorbing atmosphere. This is the same case for ultraviolet, but that's a different podcast episode. 
Now fast forward from 1957 with Sputnik 1 to 1983. It was a very good year when a bright, promising astrogeophysicist was born. Also in that year, the IRAS was launched. IRAS, I-R-A-S, stands for Infrared Astronomical Satellite. It's not the most original name, but it's functional and descriptive. And calling it the IRAS satellite is the same as saying pin number. Satellite is already in the name, so it's like saying infrared astronomical satellite satellite, just like saying pin number is like saying personal identification number number. If you really have to stick a word after IRAS, use survey. Moving on from being pedantic, IRAS was the first ever space telescope to perform an all-sky survey in the infrared. It imaged roughly 96% of the entire sky in four different wavelengths, 12 microns, 25 microns, 60 microns, and 100 microns. These are all where water vapor absorbs very well. And for reference, 100 microns is roughly the width of a human hair. 10 microns is about the size of typical fog, mist, or a cloud droplet. This means that this was the first time that astronomers, or really anyone, had been able to see what was quote-unquote visible in the sky at these wavelengths, and they could discover a lot of objects. In fact, over a quarter million infrared sources were found that hadn't been seen before. That's around the number of craters on Mars larger than about 1.3 kilometers in diameter. IRAS was launched in January of 1983, and it had a 10-month-long mission. As with other infrared satellites, including the recent Spitzer Space Telescope, IRAS lifetime was limited by the amount of coolant on board. It was kept cooled by superfluid liquid helium, but after 10 months, the supply was depleted, and the satellite started to heat up. This means that when it tried to image infrared sources in the sky, the signal was instead dominated by the glowing of the spacecraft itself. Although there are people, such as Richard Hoagland, who have their own conspiracy about whether or not it really did shut down and whether or not it really did have enough coolant to last longer. That's a different issue. So it went out of commission in November of 1983, and in December, there were some press releases about some stuff that it had seen. It's these news reports, based on these press releases, that Planet X proponents refer to when saying that NASA discovered Planet X, and they're just keeping it quiet, or at least they are now. One in particular is a news article from the Washington Post. Now, it's a real article, and I'll link to it in the show notes, and the press release that spawned it was real also. Of course, there's yet another conspiracy about when the news was announced, which was a little before Christmas, and the Washington Post article was printed just before New Year's Eve, so supposedly the story wouldn't get any traction. Getting back to the issue at hand, at least a third of the Planet X people that I've heard interviewed or read their material refer to this IRAS discovery and the Washington Post article. They tend to not refer to any other news articles. The Post article starts by saying, quote, A heavenly body possibly as large as the planet Jupiter and possibly so close to Earth that it would be part of this solar system has been found in the direction of the constellation Orion by an orbiting telescope aboard the U.S. Infrared Astronomical Satellite. So mysterious is the object that astronomers do not know if it is a planet, a giant comet, a nearby protostar, 
So in other words, they see these infrared sources and the very early work from the data from IRAS shows that the scientists involved basically have no idea what it is. So it must be Planet X according to the Planet X proponents. What they don't tell you is the rest of the first paragraph. Quote, a nearby protostar that never got hot enough to become a star, a distant galaxy so young that it is still in the process of forming its first stars, or a galaxy so shrouded in dust that none of the light cast by its stars ever gets through. Quote, All I can tell you is that we don't know what it is, end quote. Dr. Jerry Neugebauer, IRAS chief scientist, said in an interview, end quote from the Washington Post article. Now, the Washington Post goes on to speculate more on what it could be, making much about the possibility of a previously unknown planet. But that's about it, and that's where the Planet X proponents stop. They say that IRAS discovered this, it was leaked by mistake, and everything since then has been covered up, except for this Washington Post article that you can still find in archives. What they ignore is that these kinds of preliminary discoveries are always followed up with more observations to figure out what exactly they are, or at least to try to figure out what they are. IRAS went hot before it could do more observations, and it lacked the resolution to really see much detail anyway. Numerous other ground-based observations were made in other wavelengths of light to try to determine what several of the most interesting quote-unquote mystery objects were, including this one. A paper was published in just the next year, 1984, in the Astrophysical Journal, which is one of the main journals for astronomy and astrophysics. In the paper, the scientists identified all of these objects as distant, bright galaxies that were especially anomalously bright in the infrared, not planets, and not a planet that hadn't yet been discovered within the outer solar system. As with most conspiracy theories, I've never really seen anyone actually acknowledge or at least try to refute with follow-up data or their own careful observations the 1984 paper. All they simply do is refer back to the 1983 Washington Post article and say that any denial since then has been part of the cover-up. Observations with better space-based infrared observatories have supposedly been censored because, obviously, the very first news article about something and the very first of many possibilities that they list is the entire story, and it is always right. And that's really it for this fake story of Planet X, Part 5. An early all-sky survey found something that people were unsure about, and later observations showed that it was nothing within the solar system, but rather something several billion light-years away. But the conspiracy people take those first observations and ignore everything else, and to this day... This is still one of the primary, quote, NASA really did actually factually discover Planet X, end quote, claims that are out there. There are two new news items for this episode. The first is that Coincidentally, just four days after the last episode went out, there were two articles that came out in the journal Science about lunar formation. The first article was by Cook, and I apologize if I mispronounce, I believe, her name, by Cook and Stewart. 
He reported on simulations of a giant impact that showed that the conditions for the impact to form a moon were not as restrictive as previously thought. In other words, the initial modeling of the impact event indicated that a Mars-sized object would have had to strike Earth at an angle, like a glancing blow, in order to get an outcome in which the moon formed and did not destroy Earth. These new simulations show that if the early Earth were to spin faster, not like once every hour, but more like twice as fast as it does now, the impactor could have struck closer to dead on. They also showed that in that event, the material that would have formed the moon would come primarily from Earth's mantle, which helps to solve some of the isotopes of heavy elements that I briefly addressed in the last episode. On the same day, in the same journal, another article came out by Robin Knupp, who I may be able to interview on this podcast early next year. She's one of the originators of modeling the giant impact scenario, and she's been modeling it for over a decade. Her paper suggests that Earth may not have been hit by a Mars-sized object, but by an Earth-sized object. The combined planet would throw off a disk of debris, and it would also be primarily made of Earth's mantle, which also helps to solve the isotope issue. Both papers also rely on the Cook and Stewart finding that angular momentum can be more easily removed from the Earth-Moon system than previously thought. One of the issues with having such a large impact, or Earth spinning about twice as fast as previously thought, is that the angular momentum of the combined system would be larger than we observe today, which is still abnormally large as I talked about last time. But Cook and Stewart showed that soon after the moon's formation, the moon would have been in an elliptical orbit, and from gravitational interactions with the sun over several many, 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 many years, the moon can effectively bleed angular momentum from it off of the Earth-Moon system into the sun, solving the angular momentum issue. If that doesn't quite make sense, I'll be posting a movie and the press release in the show notes for this episode that shows the simulations of the angular momentum transfer. Meanwhile, for the second new news item this episode, another paper came out since the last episode, this one by Paula Reamer. This was entitled Refining the Radiocarbon Timescale. It was also published in the journal Science. I thought that this article was worth bringing up because I previously discussed how radiometric dating works, but rarely do people ever get into the nitty-gritty details. One issue, one of the complications that we raised before, is that the amount of carbon-14, that's the radioactive isotope of carbon, in the atmosphere has changed over time, and you have to make corrections for how objects that formed more than a few hundred years ago would have incorporated different amounts of carbon-14 into their structure. When I interviewed Rachel Axe about this in episode 38, she discussed an example of correcting for carbon put into the atmosphere since the onset of the Industrial Revolution. This new article reports on the discovery of annual layers of sediment in a lake that have been preserving organic material for the last 50,000 years. Because of this continuous record, it can now be used to better calibrate how we correct for the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere that was incorporated into organic material at the time, and used for radiocarbon dating today. It's not a major paradigm-changing or shattering discovery, 
but it's another example of how this kind of work is calibrated and how we're always working to refine our methods and techniques. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Chris S. from Across the Pond, who effectively asks, A claim that I've seen by some people, such as ancient alien proponents, is that there are some ancient monuments and sites that, in certain times of the year, like the winter solstice, the rising sun shines directly along a long passage and illuminates a chamber floor, or the sun on an equinox lines up precisely with two stones. But, as far as I'm aware, Earth's axis has changed in the last few years by a minimum of 7 degrees, so surely this would offset these alignments. What effect does this have to, quote, sacred, and quote, ancient sites, which have been aligned with the sun? To answer this question, I first consulted a previous guest, the dumbass who I interviewed about ancient aliens in episode 18. He had a different insight than I, but it was along the same lines that I was thinking. Dumbass, aka Parrot, said that the ancient alien proponents will often just make it up, They'll pick any two points that happen to have the sun line up on their day of choice and say that clearly this means that this was built for that purpose. Or they'll have a near alignment with the stars and claim that if you go back in time due to Earth's precession, that's where the Earth's axis starts to point to different locations in the sky on a 26,000 year cycle, then the site was built when the stars were just right for their own particular arbitrary alignment, despite what all of the archaeologists say. So to backtrack a bit from Dumbass's answer, there are a few things to keep in mind. First, the stars will appear to move from a given location on a given day at a given time over the course of about 26,000 years. That's precession. We've known about this for well over 2,000 years. This is why the North Star, or nearly North Star, Polaris, was not the North Star when, for example, the ancient Egyptians built the pyramids a few thousand years ago. So stars move, and any alignment with the stars today means that there could not have been that alignment more than a few hundred years ago. That's not the case with the Sun. Every year, astronomers actually redefine the year based on exactly when the center of the sun crosses the celestial equator in the northern hemisphere's spring equinox. That's why we sometimes add leap seconds to the calendar based on when this happens. Alignments with the sun do not change with time. The sun will pretty much always rise due east on both the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, pretty much by definition and it will always rise the farthest south of east on the winter solstice in your hemisphere, and the furthest north of east on the summer solstice in your hemisphere. This means that an alignment that was based on the sun rising in a certain spot 5,000 years ago will still happen today. Unless you're on a very, very fast-moving plate of Earth's crust, but then nothing's really moved enough in the past few thousand years to throw off that rough alignment when you're talking about large stones. What all this means, if we get back to Chris's question, is that any ancient monument built based on alignments with the sun will still show those alignments today. Any based on alignments with stars more than a few hundred years ago will not show those alignments today. 
As for Earth's axis shifting a minimum of 7 degrees in the last few years, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. The magnetic pole has moved, yes, and it moves on human timescales. The geographic pole has not moved by more than a few millimeters. Now this wraps up the Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the numerous feedback methods available. In terms of feedback, there are several items this episode, and one thing that I forgot that I could do for feedback is look at iTunes reviews or just bring in some comments from my blog. Anyway, related to last episode's topic on lunar formation theories or hypotheses, first, a correction. Expat, whom I've had as a guest before on episode 16, sent me a correction on what Mike Barra believes for the formation of Earth's moon. I was reading from just after a quote from his previous book, The Choice, where he stated, quote, It is quite obvious to me that the moon is here by design, that some larger hand is at work in its placement in our solar system. In The Choice, I examined the idea that this larger, unseen hand might be God, with a capital G. End quote. Instead, in his latest book, Ancient Aliens on the Moon, Expat corrects me that Mike is very much in favor of the fission hypothesis. Second bit of feedback is another correction to the last episode. This was one made by several people who emailed me or alerted me through other means such as skywriting and smoke signals. I misspoke and mistyped with what CREEP, K-R-E-E-P, stands for. K is potassium, R-E-E is rare earth elements, but the P is not potassium again. It's phosphorus. And now you know that I have never taken a chemistry class since 10th grade. Feedback related to an older episode on astrology. This one actually comes from the blog. Steve R. wrote in to say, Hey man, astrology works, at least for me. I do read Terry, as in Terry Nazan's, column, and I don't know the science, but all of the major events in my life were accurately predicted. Science fails to understand certain things, as there are barriers to science as well. It's like, you cannot prove God's existence, but you cannot refute it as magical thinking. Most scientists claim big theories on how the universe was formed from a small black hole, expanding and all. I find it a buttload of crap. Yes, he actually did say buttload of crap. There's clearly some universal higher power, and there are some things that you and I cannot understand. So why not stay out of it and stop hating on people? End quote. Related to another older episode, Phobos 2, Expat also wrote in, not just about the moon formation stuff, but about Major Ed Dames, who was on Coast to Coast AM on October 16th. Ed Dames is an advocate of and one of the founders of remote viewing. For those of you who are fortunate enough to not know what remote viewing is, it's a claim that people can extend their minds to basically psychically draw pictures that they then interpret as something they are trying to view. Penn and Teller did a good job on it as one of their episodes of Bull's Hit. Anyway, Dames reiterated the idea that Phobos II was knocked out by an outside force. He claimed that he was personally approached by a Russian official, or by several Russian officials, and that in his remote viewing of the event, an intelligent alien craft accidentally destroyed Phobos II, which he kept pronouncing, incidentally, as Phoebus, 
and they destroyed it by accident because its technology was so far advanced from our own. So take that for what it's worth. It's confirmation anyway of what Jim Mars said based on other remote viewing. For the next segment, it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask, and attempt to ask each episode, a critical thinking question based loosely, and in this episode, very loosely, upon the material discussed in the main segment. For this episode, because there was no Puzzler last time, with the main segment on Planet X and a Planet X discovery in the outer solar system, this Puzzler is an exploratory one, with perhaps a few possible correct answers. One hypothesis that has existed is that there is a planet Vulcan interior to Mercury, or perhaps a population of asteroids that have been called the Vulcanoids. So far, none have been discovered. Given that Mercury is so difficult to observe because it's so close to the Sun, how can we go about trying to determine if such a planet or population of asteroids exists? And as a hint, astrology is not the correct answer. So try to figure out an answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. Finally, there are two announcements for this episode. First is that in a few days, I will be interviewing an astrobiologist, Dr. Brian Henick. If you listen to this episode, as in the one that you're listening to right now, before November 3rd of 2012, please feel free to send in potential questions for the interview. It should go up for the November 16th episode. Second announcement is that I should also be getting back to the four episodes per month, starting in either December or January. That wraps up this, the 54th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it, and again, also hopefully you learn a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please use the visit, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use, one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, three, Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for this podcast. Six, or, or six, tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you liked it, tell two random people. 